and I grew up in New York City in the 1980s on a steady diet of comic books. Flame on! Cartoons. Rock and roll. And sci-fi films. Flash forward to the present. And all the geek properties I got picked on for enjoying as a kid are now creating fans globally in the form of major studio films and hit series. My fellow geeks, we have won. And to that I say, what a time to be alive. Hey, what's up everyone? I'm Lou Acosta and welcome to a very special edition of What a Time to Be Alive because in today's episode, I'm going to break format from our normal fare to pay tribute to a truly remarkable human being. And his name was Mason Swearingen. And Mason was an amazing musician and performer who realized at a very young age what his destiny was. And that destiny was to bring joy to people with the joy that music brought him. Now, over the course of his life, Mason was in many bands, most notably Beginnings, a tribute to the music of Chicago. Nationally known, Beginnings was the premier Chicago tribute band that had such tremendous reach that it even drew the attention of the band that was their namesake, Chicago. A world-class musician and performer, Sam, as he was known to those close to him, was a beloved husband, son, brother, uncle, and friend to many. And while Sam was also my friend, sadly, we lost Mason on August 23rd, 2019. Now, if you're familiar with the podcast, then you know that what I usually cover skews a bit lighter than the subject of today's episode. So then, how is this relevant to what a time to be alive? Plain and simple. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if not for Sam. This podcast and the fact that I do it and the fact that it's out there is is my passion realized and furthermore inspired by Sam's life. And Sam's life, well, (laughs) his was a life that was fully realized and realized with such passion. But I'll speak more on Sam's influence on the show later. Because make no mistake, today's episode is a celebration of Sam's life. And no one could help put Sam's story together better than the people who loved and knew him best. So at this time, I'm joined by Mason's friend and former Beginnings bandmate, Adam Seeley, friend and former bandmate, Dave Koch, and of course, Sam's wife and partner of 27 years, Linda Swearingen. Guys, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. A pleasure. Pleasure. You know, um, this one is long overdue. By the time it drops, uh, we will have definitely passed a, a year since Sam's passing, and no matter when this reaches you, it was important that it just did because Sam's story is, we'll all agree that it's a story worth telling. I record the show from the New York tri-state area and it's in this same area where Sam paid his rock and roll dues. But Sam's story began as far away from here as you can get. Born and raised in Hendersonville, North Carolina, Sam developed his passion for music by first watching his own father, Gene, a lifelong musician in his own right. Now, Linda, you probably can tell this the best. Did Sam ever talk about what it was like growing up in a musical household or, or, or even the influences dad may have had on his path? Oh, of course, all the time. Yeah, music was a big part of Sam's childhood and his background. His dad was a bass player and singer in college, in a band in college. And then after that, he would play music with friends and they would just jam out, you know, whenever guys would come to the house. And Sam was always around for that. His mom influenced him also because she encouraged him to take piano lessons since he was little. So that was the beginning of his, his um, musical training, but music was always part of his life. He always talked about his parents listening to the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, um, Almond Brothers, that kind of stuff. So it was, it's definitely part of his DNA. 
Sam could have played anything, but the fact that he played bass, is it safe to say that we you could draw a direct line from Gene's influence? I think so, because Gene was a huge influence for Sam musically, but also as a person. Um, we lost Gene in April of 2020, sadly, and, you know, as the family gets together and friends get together and talk about both of them, it is impossible not to notice how similar they were and how um, how much Sam was influenced by his dad. So the music, huge, was a huge, huge part of that. Right. Suffice to say that that Sam's own father was his first musical influence. But, of course, when Kiss came on the scene in the early 1970s, like many of us, Sam was in hook, line, and fire. Sam was the biggest Kiss fan I had ever met. <laughs> but um, he told me the story of the first Kiss album that he received as a gift. I cannot tell you which one it was, but um, he asked his granny mom to buy him this album for his birthday. I don't know which birthday it was, but he was little. And when she bought it and gave it to him and he opened it, she was like, wait a minute, what is that? What did I just buy you? Who are these degenerates? And she disapproved of it, but he was thrilled and, and um, it was one of his most prized albums. <laughs> uh, little did uh, Granny Mom know that they were nice Jewish boys from Queens. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Sam followed his passion to New York City in the late 1980s. Now, as someone who grew up in New York City during that time, let's just say the landscape of the city was a lot different back then than it is today. Today, oh, it's great. There's a Pinkberry at every other corner. You have a restaurant dedicated to just meatballs. Like, that's it. Meatballs. Pizza making classes, yoga, you name it. And that's fine. But back then, not so ironic and not so much the prime real estate it is today. The word that comes to mind? Gritty. And I'm being generous. And Sam came here at just 19 years of age. Linda, what the hell was he thinking? He could not wait to leave North Carolina his whole life. He was just very excited about coming to New York and making music and he the the town where he grew up was just too small for him and he wanted something bigger he saw crazy shit all the time he saw you know i think he had a gun pulled on him i think he saw like homeless people running around naked in the subways um got mugged a couple of times had to run away from drug dealers you know regular new york stuff but he held those stories and told those stories you know like a badge you know he was very proud of his new york experience he definitely experienced new york the ugly New York fully, fully. Okay. So Mason basically got the authentic New York experience, but I'm, I'm just curious. What part of the city did he move into? He lived on, um, what is it called? The Upper West Side, but it was the way uptown. Uptown. It was like 108th Street. Yeah. What, what area? So it's like, kind of like, I think that's Morningside yeah. Heights. Lovely. It, it, Lovely. It, it was like drug dealer town back then. So, yeah, Sam arrives in New York at 19 years of age and meets this young, phenomenally gifted guitarist named Dave Koch in what would prove to be this very serendipitous union that would last literally a lifetime. And these two have been down the road and have done so much together as friends and musically, which that, the list is long. It, Dave, I'm sure you can speak to this a hell of a lot better than I can. Um, I, I did meet Sam back in the day. I was, I was at that apartment quite often. Um, and it was sort of a feeling of take your life in your own hands. Like, you know, once you got past like the, the, 
mid nineties, like you, you did not feel like you were going to a safe place. But uh, I, I met Sam just kind of weird. I was in a band uh, with my uh, lead singer from uh, my, my last band in college who lived in Jersey and convinced me to move up to New York like the rest of us to become rock stars and whatnot. And um, we had a band uh, at the time called Whiskey Licks and we, uh, Sam's roommate, Lauren, who was also from Hendersonville, North Carolina, was our bass player. And that's how we met Sam was because we would, you know, rehearse with uh, Lauren and actually uh, this other guy, Eric, who was their drummer, he was from North Carolina as well. And they all lived together. And so we would have rehearsals, uh, you know, during the week, but every Friday we'd have a rehearsal. It was more like, it would turn into a big jam. We'd have a bunch of our music, you know, other musician friends uh, pop in. And it was more of like, you know, jam, drink beers, like, and then go out together kind of a, a scene. And so uh, one time Sam came down and we ended up hanging out and uh, and he got up and started singing and jamming with us. And we're like, holy shit, man, this guy's good. Um, and so he and I hit it off like from day one. And the funny thing is, is we would go to parties and stuff and he would always uh, introduce me to people that, you know, he was friends with and be like, oh, this is my friend, Dave Koch, blah, blah, blah. He's an awesome guitar player, but, you know, he and I should be in a band together, but he's too stupid to know it, you know? And he, that was always his line. And it was just like, at one point, uh, you know, the, so Whiskey Licks ended up dissolving and Lauren and I still wanted to continue doing, you know, playing music together and, and, you know, Sam was already kind of in the mix and, and, you know, we ended up putting this band together with him and we formed this band called Nothing But Trouble and kind of, that was it. And from that point forward, we were in like about a billion bands together over, you know, multiple decades. And that was the beginning of a, a, a phenomenal friendship and, uh, and a, a great music partnership, you know, both uh, performing and songwriting. And, you know, I think we pretty much did everything you can do as uh, collaborators and, and, you know, good friends who, loved kiss and all the other, you know, great things in life. So, Okay. Lynn, I got to circle back here because it was quite ballsy for Sam to arrive in New York city when he did. I mean, that's a lot to throw yourself into. What was Sam's goal? His goal was to make a living making music. And I think to, I think his real goal was to be a rock star. I think his goal was to produce original music, you know, play, play his own songs. And, um, and just have fun doing it and be able to make a living. I think, Dave, I mean- Absolutely, I mean, I think we're all in the same boat. I was, you know, a kid growing up in a small town outside of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, watching MTV when MTV was, you know, a new thing in, you know, the eighties and and wanting to be that guy playing for like, you know, 40,000 people and and being a rock star. You know, I mean, that that's, that's you don't know any better in, in your youth kind of like when you're watching that kind of stuff, especially coming from a small town in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it's amazing how much you learn once you move to New York and, and you kind of get hardened to the whole music industry and how that works. And we had friends who were in bands that were signed. I remember having a couple of guys who I was friends with who were signed to Arista Records. And they, you know, the one dude was still delivering pizza for a living. The, the amount of stuff that you get exposed to getting out of a small town America and moving to New York. And, and I also think that New York makes you a sharper person just in general. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's kind of funny. I had mentioned, you know, uh, the other guys we played with from Hendersonville, they all went back. Um, and Sam was the only one who stayed. Um, and, you know, to me, Sam, he graduated, you know, and we became those people who really became more savvy about things, you know, than, again, growing up uh, kind of sheltered. He became a New Yorker, and not everybody who comes from another place can do that. But he definitely became a New Yorker. Without a doubt. But 
I think what I forgot to mention before is Sam was in a band in high school called Dionysus. And they used to dress up in, in like funky outfits with the skin tight pants and, you know, the 80s hair bands that you think of. Wait, wait, was there, was there makeup? Of course there was makeup. So we're talking glam metal here. Yeah, makeup. Big hair and like, we're talking like um, Asylum era kiss with like, you know. Nail polish, <laughs> eyeliner, eyeliner. <laughs> um, ladies pants that he, he squeezed into, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> All of that. And I remember there was one huge show with a few hundred people, I think, I think. And I remember it was a, a really big deal. And I remember that Sam said his dad told him, like, if this is all you ever have, you have an amazing memory. But it was so not all he ever had. It was just a taste of it. And um, and he was hooked. New York, a great music scene, but a town that's known for, like, eating people up and spitting them out and sending them back home. What made him think that he could make it? That is a really good question. He knew what he wanted since he was a kid, a little kid. He knew what he wanted. He was laser focused. He didn't deviate from that. Um, he was not interested in drugs and drinking and, you know, the, the seedier side of things. Like he was pure in his passion and his desire to make good music and make music for people to enjoy and, and for people to have a good time with. And that's what he wanted to do. And that's what drove him. And the New York scene didn't scare him, didn't scare him because he was, he was strong inside, you know, he was tough enough to do it. And, and, you know, he, I think was big enough to fill the space that is New York where these other guys, it just was not for them. The space, the New York was too big for them. They didn't feel comfortable, but he, he took like a fish to water here and he loved it. He loved it. I would have to say, like, I, I, quite frankly, I think it invigorated him. I mean, he, he loved every moment of it. He loved uh, the excitement of New York City. Um, the whole thing, you know, just he, he was, I can't remember a moment when Sam wasn't just totally fired up and excited to be playing music in New York. Mm. Dave, you and Sam have such a long history, but if you can remember and if you can count them, how many bands have you and Sam been involved in? Wow. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing but trouble. Uh, and there, there were some pseudo bands that, you know, I'm not sure if you call them bands or like recording projects with people that we never kind of continued with. But I mean, there was, there was that, there was Doc Holliday, there was Bad Caddy. I forgot about that one. <laughs> right? Yeah. I think, I think Bad Caddy preceded Gringo Love Show. And then there was Gringo Love Show, which was another one of the big ones. Yeah, that was big. Uh, I wouldn't say we were in the band, but at the time we used to sub for Air Dogs. I'm in Air Dogs now, but at the time he and I subbed for Air Dogs quite a bit. Um, that band is like a rotating group of probably about, I don't know, 25 musicians who you just don't even know who's going to be on the gig. Like you show up like, oh, you're on the gig tonight? Cool, you know? I mean, we did a yacht rock band together, the Yachtsmen, um, and of course Almost Famous. So I don't even know what I'm up to now. I would say total probably around seven. It kind of goes on and on. And we did a ton of original music that we wrote together and recording. And we even did an acoustic duo thing for a while. Oh, that was so good. There was this one show you did. I don't remember the name of the club. It was Sam and Dave with acoustic guitar and and vocals. That's it, right? No drums, nothing. That was one of the best shows I've ever seen. 
to me, I want to say it was like mid nineties and I'm just totally guessing. Cause after nothing but trouble, I kind of took a break from playing uh, live and I just needed a break, but Sam kept playing. Um, and that's kind of how we got started playing again together. And we started with just acoustic stuff, you know, and he was the one who brought it to me. He was just like, dude, how would you feel about doing this? You know, because we'd always played acoustically at parties here and they're just really like informal, you know, our voices always meshed very well. Like, you know, with him singing lead and me harmonizing, it just, it was a natural fit. Like, you know, it was just whatever the harmony angels kind of blessed us to get, you know, put in each other's path. And it was effortless. And I agree, Lynn, like that, that was one of the best gigs that we ever did together. It was just fun, awesome, simple, you know, unplugged. That was so good. Well, all right, then let's revisit that era and hear a medley of acoustic numbers from Mason Swearingen and Dave Koch. Definitely a sound that brings you back to a certain time. Now, those last three tracks in order were Play the Fool, Till Death Do Us Part, and Rise Above. All of those courtesy of Dave Koch, and again, were original compositions from Mason and Dave's acoustic years. But just to circle back, Dave, you brought up something really interesting. You know, with with Sam arriving on the New York music scene in the late 80s, and, and at that point, the flavor of the month for many a rock band was, you know, the glam scene, hair bands. But then as we start moving into the early 90s, Nirvana comes along. It changed everything, yeah. Yeah, and that was the death nail for many a hard rock metal band. And then grunge was it. You know, really leaving the party scene of the 80s behind for songs that were darker in tonality with, with lyrics that were more substantial. So were you guys at that point fighting for musical relevancy as the scene changed? Um, we definitely, we, we saw the writing on the wall and saw what was happening because nothing but trouble was more of like a, uh, an eighties metal band. You know, I, w- I wouldn't call us really glam, although we, you know, we had a little bit of that in us, but you know, we, we didn't wear makeup or any of that stuff. Um, you know, but we still sort of wore like the, the clothes and that kind of thing. Um, 
but we, we, you know, we were getting there uh, when things were changing quite a bit, you know, and you have the bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and, uh, uh, you know, Stone Temple Pilots coming out. And that was around the same time that Nothing But Trouble was, you know, getting, you know, put to sleep. And that was when he and I started doing a lot of writing and recording together. We really trying to kind of figure out, all right, what's the next step? How do we write stuff that's a little less cheesy and 80s and write more relevant stuff? Uh, and, and quite frankly, Sam was the one who was, I remember him bringing, uh, I can't remember the name of the song, but um, it was called Innocent Age. And he brought that to me and it was so dark and so 90s. And I loved it. I was like, wow, this is cool. Okay, we're taking the first step into, you know, phase two or, you know, Mach two to quote Spinal Tap. At the time that we didn't have a band together and it was really just he and I putting stuff to tape and, you know, the whole plan was was taking that out and, and chopping it, you know. Um, but yeah, like nothing but trouble was it. The, everything was going great. We were playing like Danceteria and, you know, the Bond Street Cafe and all these like, you know, great New York venues and then suddenly that just all changed and that wasn't a thing anymore and you know you had to readjust so you're reminding me of some of the songs that you guys wrote together you know do you remember Rolling Thunder oh my god absolutely well all right then let's take a listen to Mason and Dave and Rolling Thunder would you take my hand if I was a broken man if their pockets were all I had to show Would you ride with me Not knowing our destiny Leave everything behind and hit the open road That's the only life that I know Trying to tame this steel stallion on this black ribbon rodeo Rolling thunder in the wind Never turning back again So laser-focused, late 80s, 90s music scene. 27 bands that Sam and Dave have been in together. <laughs> but there's a huge part of this story we haven't even mentioned. And you can't tell Sam's story without talking about Linda, the person who would be by Sam's side for 27 years. Linda, how did you meet Sam? How did you get involved in all this craziness that lasted a, literally a lifetime? Oh, well, so uh, I met Sam in 1992. He was in a band called Cloak and Dagger. Um, I was taking guitar lessons at the time, and my guitar teacher said, uh, hey, why don't you come you know, check out my band? So uh, I brought a friend of mine, my friend Cecilia, to come and see the band play they were playing at the village gate in greenwich village at the top of the gate and it was a little place and you had to you know sit at little cocktail tables with a two drink minimum and so we sat at this table where somebody had left drinks because we didn't have money to pay for drinks and uh there the, there was this guy who was like kind of making faces at sam and um seemed like he knew him and um i was like do you know that guy he's like yeah that's that's my friend sam cecilia was pointing at the singer this other guy, Howie, and saying, that guy's cute. What, what do you think of him? And I was like, no, 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 that one, the bass player. So um, after the show, he was at the bar having a drink, and I went over and I tapped him on the shoulder, and I was, I was like, hi, how are you doing? 
And it was his 24th birthday. It was his 24th birthday. He gave me his number and we made a plan to possibly meet at um, the limelight. We were going to have a date. So he, uh, I called him. We made a date to meet at the limelight and the motherfucker stood me up. He didn't show up. He didn't show up. <laughs> so I called the number that I had, which was, um, you know, his home number and his roommate answered the phone. and. Um, told me that he went to the movies and he went to see Batman. <laughs> wait a minute. Can I, can I just interrupt? Do you, know what, do you know which Batman it was? Yes. It was the first one, right? 1992. No, oh. I, think that was, I think it was 89. Michael Keaton. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. All right. Was it 92? Was it 92? I don't know. If it was the one with Val Kilmer, then I would say like, all right. Yeah. That's right. 90, 92. Was, yeah. Okay. Uh, he also did the uh, second one was 92. Can we rein it in, guys, nerds? We got to get the timeline right. No, it's listen, Linda. This is important because if it was George Clooney Batman, then there would be no excuse to stand you up. <laughs> well, whenever. So Sam supposedly went to the movies, but when and I stayed at the club by myself and I hung out and I had a great time. Anyway, <laughs> it was a fun place and I had never been. Well, sounds like an absolute blast for you. I could definitely tell you how Batman was, but te technically. If it was 1992, it was Batman Returns. Michael Keaton. Just saying. Oh. What a time capsule. Michael Keaton is Batman, which is several. Several Batman ago. <laughs> the Limelight. Uh, just to give you a bit of context, the Limelight was a decommissioned church in New York City that was turned into a nightclub. And it was such an, an awesome club because each floor had a different theme. If you were into house music, well, they had a house music floor and a dance floor where you could go and they had, there was a stage area for live acts. You had a rock and roll floor, you know, you had a freestyle floor, an R&B floor. It was just, just an amazing scene. Limelight was a fun place. Oh. Just saying. Wow, chef's kiss to that one. It, it, it was in, insanity. Sunday night metal night was just insane. And then later on, Dave, didn't we yes. go and see some bands there? I feel like we all did. Danger, we, we, danger? I don't know. I think we did see Danger, danger there. We, we, we actually though. Um, you and Sam and Tina and I went and saw. Um, Tina's my wife, by the way. The four of us went and saw Saigon Kick there. Yes. Wow. Yes. These are some anyway. deep cuts, by the way. Deep, deep cuts. Deep, really deep. deep cuts. Danger, danger. What did everybody get? Naughty, naughty. <laughs> right. That was their big hit. I'll never tell. <laughs> Anyway, um, so the day after Sam stood me up, I called him or he called me or whatever. And, and um, I actually gave him a second chance. And I think a lot of people would not have done that. But this is going to sound corny, but it's real. I feel like when we met, I felt a connection immediately. And it made me believe in love at first sight. Because after like talking to him for 20 minutes, my mind quickly went forward to seeing a future. Anyway, so I met him and he was wearing one purple Converse sneaker and one pink Converse sneaker. And I thought that was freaking cool. <laughs> Again, I have told this story many times to other people and uh, not a lot of ladies would have been into that, but I was super into it. I thought it was awesome. Anyway, our dates lasted for hours and we would just walk around and talk. That's what we did. And, and I, should, I should say the, our first date, um, we went to have drinks somewhere, I forget where, in the village. And this guy, Dave Koch, 
somehow <laughs> appeared and like would not leave. He would not leave. I was like, I'm just having um, a really good time. Is, it, is your friend going to ever leave? Are you saying that, that Dave Koch was the third wheel on your first date? <laughs> yes. Yes. This is perfect. Yes, this is was. like a, this is like a TGIF sitcom. I still remember oh it like, and, and look back and like, Oh my God, how did I not see the signs? Like the, the three of us are hanging out and we, we went to a few bars together, I think. And then we're just hanging on like, somewhere in the village like sitting on like a wall outside and i'm like yes, yeah on, on the, the street. street on the street and i was like just so what do you guys up. want to do next and they're like uh <laughs> like can you just split leave? up <laughs> split up exactly anyway so when i met sam he was in whatever band with dave i don't remember i guess it was um nothing but trouble i guess probably. it was nothing but trouble or the beginnings of it and cloak and mm -hmm. dagger I would go around and see the shows all the time. I would even go to rehearsals and hang out. Yeah, I was that girl. I was that girl that would sit in rehearsal. Um, I remember one time going with him to see, to, to watch him play um, a bar in Connecticut with Cloak and Dagger. And I don't know how or why, but we, we slept in a tent in someone's backyard on the floor. <laughs> so there was lots of fun times in vans, driving to shows, you know, seeing all these people. I was indoctrinated into this rock chick role that I lived throughout our whole life together. In addition to our private life, there was always music, always bands, always um, Sam pursuing this dream that was his passion. And um, because it was his passion, it was my passion and I loved it. You know, as time went by and as years went by, you know, you get older, there's, you don't always have energy for all this stuff. And he's talked about how things were frustrating and maybe what he would do if he didn't do this or maybe he couldn't do this anymore. And I always supported him. I always, I was always by his side and, and behind him. And I didn't want him to be frustrated. I wanted him to, I wanted him to do what he loved and what he, what he wanted to do. But, but I also loved it. I think I would have been sad if he decided not to follow his passion anymore because I loved it and it was part of me and it was part of our life. And I could not ever imagine our life without music. And that being said, I, I do have to say like I, I've been in a billion bands with Sam and Lynn was always like, you know, just another member of the band, you know, from all of our perspectives. Like she was always so insanely supportive yep. and always helping out and, doing whatever she could, like, uh, like from when we were, you know, 23 to, you know, 43 plus, you know, I don't want to date anybody here. When I'm 43, when I'm 43. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I was speaking for myself. Yes. I just turned 43 uh, last week. <laughs> but, um, but no, seriously, the, uh, Lynn's always been like a, a, just another member of the band. Like she's always been and she named almost famous. She came up with the name. It was just like, you know, we couldn't figure out what we wanted to be called or, you know, and it, it goes from everything from that to doing crowd control. <laughs> like, I mean, like bouncing, if you will, for us um, to dealing with sound men who were subpar and, you know, she, you know, could hear that there were things that were missing. Like, you know, the, you know, in many cases that the guitar wasn't loud enough. Thank you. Anytime um, you got it. <laughs> Right on. But, but I mean, it, Lynn's always been a supporter and, you know, like just thinking back, like from when we were first playing in Nothing But Trouble together, that band, you know, like we were just like an entourage that we all traveled together. We all, we didn't just play music together. We hung out together. Like we all, you know, throughout all the years and all the different bands, we've always been, you know, kind of a big family, you know, that just, you know, we're not just playing music together, but we really 
enjoyed spending time together um, and had become the greatest of friends. And I would say even beyond that family, it's just, it's a, an amazing history. And honestly, I, I feel totally uh, fortunate to have, you know, come across your path and, and Sam's path. And I mean, that totally changed my life and probably put me into, you know, on paths and directions that I may have never been on. I think, um, you know, since we first all met, at first it was just fun. It, was, it was always fun. But yeah. at some point we would like look around if, if people weren't dancing, we're like, come on, let's go get up there. We would bring other ladies and get the crowd going. And that always felt like my job for the next 27 years is to get people going, get people dancing. And so I've always done that. And I felt like that was, um, I mean, I loved it. Nobody, nobody could ever say I didn't, I didn't love it. I loved it. But I also felt like it was what I was supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, it, all that stuff was was just huge. Like again, from from the littlest thing to the biggest thing, it just it all mattered, and it all enhanced everything that was going on, you know. And and you were always just unbelievably supportive, you know, no matter what, and 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 protective as well. Like you know, just making sure that we were being taken care of on every level, you know, whether it be like someone you know, out in the crowd, like, you know, being a little out of control or whether it be like a, a, you know, again, a poor sound man or even, you know, management, whatever. It just, it's, I can't tell you how much uh, I've appreciated the fact that you actually just didn't sit back and, you know, just let shit happen. You helped change the course on things. And that's always been awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Dave, as you just mentioned, you and Sam have been in countless bands together, but then gradually moving on to the cover band scene, the one band you guys were in that gained traction was, of course, almost famous. Yeah. Even though beginnings in recent years became a full-time job for Sam, there was always almost famous. And those were always great shows where Sam looked like he was having a blast. Yeah, it's absolutely true. But you know what? Let's let the music do the talking and give the people a taste of Sam and Dave in Almost Famous.
Damn, such a fun set list. But, you know, as I said at the top of the show, this isn't just another tribute band performer or cover band story. Mason's story is, is rooted in his passion and drive to move forward. And, and as things changed, you know, never giving a thought to giving up, but kind of saying, what's my next step? Now, I'm sure a lot of musicians come to New York and, and other big cities with stars in their eyes, you know, in hopes of making it and making it big based on original songwriting, original music. But I'm also sure a lot of those musicians fall by the wayside, you know? So at some point, uh, Linda, where did Sam's focus shift from writing original material and performing that material to, to the tributing cover band lifestyle, you know, getting into that? Sam came across Eric Stewart, who was is a, an original um, artist. He's a singer-songwriter and played with Eric Stewart, opening up for Peter Frampton for, uh, I believe, two years or close to it. And they traveled the country. They played a lot of really great shows all over from, from here to California, the Midwest, the South, the Northeast. And they were playing at a club in Long Island one night. And after the band goes backstage, this guy comes up to Sam and says, hey, listen, you know, you're really great. I have a Billy Joel tribute band, and it would be great if you can come play with us. So he, Sam literally learned 20 songs in a week. Wait, he learned 20 Billy Joel songs in a week? Yes, Sam learned 20 Billy Joel songs in a week. Showed up, of course I was there, showed up to a bar in Long Island, and got on stage with these guys that he'd never met and played a show. He practiced diligently. He always practiced. He practiced when he wasn't actively, you know, getting ready for a show. He always, you know, kept his chops up and that's what he constantly did. He practiced singing. He warmed up his voice. He sang and he played bass. So he played with the Billy Joel tribute band, Big Shot, for two years, pretty much every Friday, Saturday night for two years. And when Eric Stewart band kind of stopped playing, he, he continued with Big Shot and uh, Seeley, Adam Seeley. You, you played with that band as well. Yeah, that's where I first saw him. <laughs> Adam Seeley. I'm sorry, everyone. I have to reintroduce you to our third guest, Adam Seeley, who we haven't heard since the top of the show when he said hello. And that's been about 40 minutes. But <laughs> this is kind of where you come into the story, where both you and Sam are performing in the Billy Joel tribute band, Big Shot. Uh Big Shot was like one of the first tribute bands on Long Island. I remember just to back up a little bit to set the stage. Somebody called me, an old bass player friend of mine said, there's a Billy Joel tribute band playing around the corner from you. And I'm like, man, I love Billy Joel. I'm either going to love this or hate it. It's either going to frustrate me or I'm going to love it. And I remember I saw Mike Del Judas and he sounded great, but he didn't have the band that he eventually had when Sam was in it. And I knew him as Mason. So I saw, I was dating a girl at the time and we would, we would just go all the time to see Big Shot. And then I remember seeing this new bass player that they had and I'm like, wow, this guy's like lighting up the stage. He's adding so much to it. And, and my girlfriend was like, he's, he's great. He's great. This is so great. And I never really even talked to him. I felt like I knew him and I didn't really talk to him that much. Um, I remember uh, Mike Del Judas, the leader, would give Sam uh, Sweet Home Alabama to sing. He would kind of make it look like they would, you know, impromptu kind of go into it and Mason would go up to the microphone and sing lead on it. Do you remember that, Lynn? That was like his thing. Of course, thing. of course. I was so proud of that. It was amazing. Everybody was like, oh. <laughs> and I remember it was like as great as the Billy Joel stuff was. It was something that in that show just leaped forward as something special and, and Mike gave Sam the spotlight for that. And I always thought it was funny because the bass in Billy Joel is very key, but it's not like 
as you know as forefront as the vocals the lyrics and the piano parts and even even some of the sax and the drums so i always thought it was interesting that mason played such a rock solid bass in a billy joel tribute band obviously emulating doug stegmeyer um from the billy joel albums but when i saw mason and and i was like wow that guy's just great He's, he seems so great we mike was actually um forming the chicago tribute band beginnings he called me and said does your horn section who would sometimes play with Big Shot want to do a Chicago tribute band? And I said, yeah, sounds great. But what are you thinking? He goes, well, I'm doing a lot with Big Shot lately. It's like Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So the Chicago thing would probably be just be like a Thursday night kind of band. And, you know, we play every once in a while, make a couple of bucks. And I'm like, all right, whatever, let's do it. And at that time, my horn section was playing with like a bunch of different bands. So what was one more? And like, why not? Let's do it. And we that horn section played with Big Shot. So why not continue it? Mike just got a little bit more, you know, involved with Big Shot and he eventually stepped aside from beginnings. We played about a year or two with Mike and he was like, yeah, I'm just not feeling any more beginnings. I want to keep going with Big Shot. And Mike was the bass player in beginnings. So at the time, Phil Antonucci was the guitar player in beginnings. And he called, I remember this call so vividly. He called me up and he goes, what are we going to do? Mike just left the band. We did all these shows. You wrote out all those charts for the horns. We did all this rehearsing. We're just going to fold this up. I said, we're not going to fold it up. We'll find another bass player. And Phil goes, wait a minute. Why don't we get Mason? Why don't we just get Mason? And I'm like, well, well why are you on the phone? He's still call him, call him. And it was like the most, <laughs> it was the most exciting like phone call. It was like, it was like Christmas came early. And I remember being in my office, like from my day job, just going, all right, please just ring back, just call back. And Phil called me back. He's like, he's in, he's in. Mason said he's in. And we felt like we hit like the lottery because it was like, wow, we got that guy in our band. This is great. This is going to be like, I just didn't really know him that well, but I just knew it was going to work out. Like I knew he had like a stage presence. And when he was first in beginnings, Mason, he was like very much showed up, just did his job. He was very laid back. He rarely talked backstage. I mean, he was friendly. It wasn't like he was aloof or anything, but he wasn't the band leader that he eventually grew into and the leader that he grew into. Like you want to talk about growth that, that Lou was setting up before. And I think it ladders back to like what what made him think he could succeed in music when he first got to New York. It's because he loves what he does. It's not because he's like, I just want to get to the part where I get on stage and somebody throws their panties up on stage or I get to like, you know, you know, hit this great chord and shout this great note. He loved every part of being a rock star. He loved wrapping up a cable. He loved being in the back of a car. He loved driving in the, uh, to a hotel. He loved you know, the beer that you have right before you go on and the beer you have after you're done and you're reminiscing about the great set, set that you just did. That's what made him succeed is that some people don't want to put in the work and they just want the 10% of the glory and the glamour. He loved the sweat of it too. I think he really that's what did. He, he really did. He, he loved packing the truck. He loved packing I mean. everything in the van. He loved rushing and running to the airport and make the plane. He never, he never rolled his eyes. Yeah. He never rolled his eyes at any point in the process. And I think that's what separates someone that is eventually because he's already succeeded. When you, when you do that, you've already succeeded because you love what you do. You know what I mean? Like everybody's got parts of their jobs that, or parts of their daily lives that they probably don't like, or you, you, lo you, you love a job that you have but there's that 10 20% of the time of the day, like, ah, I hate this part of my job. He never projected that. He always, it wasn't just being the rock star and being the singer and the lead singer and the bass player. He loved that every aspect of it, that it was the big, it was contributing to like producing this live experience with an audience that they, they were part of it. He was casting them 
to be part of us. You know, it, it was, it, it's so, I mean, it sounds corny, but it's that, that's how he approached music. He approached music as a celebration of live music, no matter what the song was, no matter if it was two people or 2000 people out there, it was a, it was a party and he had a role and the audience had a role. That's what was, that's why he succeeded because he loved every aspect of it. And a lot of this is just coming to me now. That's what's wild about Mason, you know, and Sam is that a lot of this, you don't see when you're in it with them. You see it when you step back and you take a breath and you go, Oh shit, that's what that was about. So that's what I think is pretty, pretty motivating about how he conducted himself. And, and he just grew into a band leader with beginnings in the years that, went on, he became more vocal in band meetings and said, well, wait a minute, the horn should come up front. The horn should have wireless mics. This should happen over here and that should happen there. And we fought, everybody fought in that band at the time. We had so too many type A personalities and he was eventually the one that just kind of took the temperature down and said, guys, this is what we have to do. And everybody got on board. Um, so it was, it, was, it was inspiring to see him grow from just a guy that had to fill the bass seat and obviously sing all the lead parts which was a monumental task itself but then he saw where the personalities and the, the the whole of the band off stage had to improve and the chemistry had to get better and we had to be more of a team off stage not just on stage he filled all those gaps so that's that's what was really remarkable and a, a big part of what he loved so much was the fans you know, a lot of people yeah. would find it exhausting, including me after a night of playing. And then even the next morning, you know, we're in Las Vegas walking through a restaurant, you know, tired and, and, and people would constantly stop him and say, Hey, you guys were great last night. And I'd be like, Oh, come on. And he would be like, no, yeah. it's okay. He would stop and talk to them. And, and it was genuine. He, he mastered that meet and greet that we did with, with, with beginnings. I mean, it became part of the show with us. I mean, everybody liked it. Of course, everybody likes getting people come up to you going, oh, this sounded great. That sounded great. He really had an art form out of that. He, ma he made it like a, um, he smiled at everybody. And that's what pe people that just met him would come. I truly believe they came back because they felt like they knew him and they, that he was a friend after they saw the show. So like they would see us play and then they would talk to Mason and then they would be like, I think I want to go see that band again. And I think it's because they like Chicago and I think they like the music, but I think he added something personal to it. I think he made people feel uh, like, like they were special, you know, he yeah, wanted to hear I, I their he story. I, like why was Chicago important to you? And he genuinely liked yeah, it. He, he listened. He, he didn't just shake a hand and go, ah, whatever, you know, but you can't, be, can't believe that guy shook my hand. He genuinely connected with people and he's just a warm you know, that it was a warm way of connecting with people back, um, you know, in the lobby afterwards and just signing a little CD that we did for them. And, you know, and, and it was, you know, he didn't write those songs, but the way we put together those songs, he was proud of the way we presented it and celebrated Chicago's music, obviously. And, you know, we would run into fans everywhere. He would see somebody in the city um, going up the escalator from the subway and someone would be like, hey, I saw you in that band. Or uh, we were at um, a baseball game once and these people came over and were like, hey, aren't you in that band Almost Famous? We took a picture with them. I was like, come on. We were at a Joan Jett show once and people were like, hey, I know you. I was like, oh my God, already. We were at my, niece, my niece's um, performance in Long Island and people were like, hey, I know that guy. It was ridiculous and he loved it loved and what's funny too is we talk about long island he played so many shows on long island with big shot in the day 
tribute bands started to catch on and you could name any artist and you could probably find a tribute band on Long Island in, I want to say the last 15 years. It just really started to explode. He kept a nice little, um, his ear to the ground with, with Mason with beginnings, but I don't think he realized how many people admired him out on Long Island that were trying to just do a tribute band. And they would say, oh, you're in beginnings. You know, Mason does such a great job with that. How does he do that? How does he get it all together? And, you know, I don't, I used to try to go out of my way to tell him that I don't think you realize how many people admire how you're doing things and how you're, you know, he kind of, I, I think he, he was so ensconced in it and he's got his head down and just focusing so much on the band that I always wanted him to step back and kind of, I think one time, Linda, you and him came out to, see uh my wife was seen with 45 rpm at mulcahy's and it was a rare time where you guys are like oh let's go out it was a night off mason wasn't playing and he came out i'm like oh wow mason linda coming out this is gonna be fun and the bass player from that band uh simon michael walsh i remember walking up to mason going hey you don't know me but uh but i'm a big fan of yours and i, I see you all the time on beginnings on facebook and all that and i just thought it was a really cool moment of someone that's not in mason's world that came up and acknowledged him you know what i mean and just kind of you know even as another musician just a cool little moment. You know, after Sam died, um, and I and I would see people for the few shows that I went to after that, and at, at his service and things like that, and tribute shows for him, tributes to him. I would meet people and say, "Did you know him?" And and a lot of these musicians would say, "No, I never met him, but I but I I know I know of him." It was a lot of that, and I didn't realize either. He definitely did not know that he was known within the music um, circles. Yeah, I tried to tell him a lot of that. Um, you know, not to just like wake him up, but just to kind of give him the props that I think that he wouldn't normally have received, you know, just like to try to funnel that and be a line of communication. I also think that's what made Sam so special. Um, my perception was that, yeah, he was this amazing performer who was laser focused and confident, didn't let the attention go to his head, and had that that confidence in himself and in everybody else around him to like let each member of the band have their time and like step back on stage and like let them have their moment. He wasn't this like he wasn't hot dogging it, you know. He was a star with humility and gratitude. He was confident, as you say, but he wasn't cocky. He was not full of himself. He was humble. He was modest. Not that he didn't know he was talented. I'm pretty sure he knew. He knew damn well how good he was, but but he was humble and modest. You know, sometimes um, I had to just make sure. So when he would be out on the road and and you know call me and tell me how the crowds were or how you know so and so fan said you know I just saw Chicago last week, but you guys are better. He would tell me all these stories, and um, you know when he came home. I picked him up at the airport, got home. I was like, all right, we got to come back down to earth and clean the toilet. <laughs> but he knew, he knew, he knew who he was. He was solid. He was happy to come home, but he loved being on the road. He loved every part of it. Yeah, he knew. Um, he, somewhere along the line, Beginnings became like a Broadway show. It just became less of like... Uh, we're just going to, uh, let's figure out what the set list is going to be tonight. We, we kind of had a show. We would swap out two or three things, but it had a beginning, a middle, and ending. And I think he kind of crafted that. I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of is me and him wrote that 80s medley together of all the Chicago tunes because Chicago's got so many 80s power ballads, but it took up too much time and in, in in, it, it took up too much real estate in a 90-minute show that we were always contracted for. So Mason and I said, let's do a verse and a chorus of this one, go into this one, go into this one. And it became our own thing. And I think people have kind of really re 
love that. Every time we did that, I always kind of was proud that we kind of came up with that of a way to kind of flow one thing and it became a little bit of a staple and people loved the way we did that. Um, but he, he recognized like, you know, to what Lou was saying, he, he recognized everybody else's role. He wasn't somebody who was like, well, we, I want to add this song because it's a lead that I'm going to sing on. He wasn't that guy. He was like, this guy should sing this one because it's this. And you know, that's what Chicago has. Chicago has a lot of different sounds. It's not just one lead singer throughout the years. They've had 30 years of hits that have different sounds and different, you know, leads. And Mason recognized that and he would do his part and jump in on that. And then maybe we should do this over here. And so it was just cool to see him build as a band leader as beyond a bass player and a singer. And he recognized what the bigger picture was for the success of the band. I, I totally would have to agree. Like he, out of anyone I've ever played with, like it, especially lead singers, he was such a sick fucking lead singer and like the stage press, I had so many people would come up to me and be like, your singer is like, he's like, reminds me of David Lee Roth only with a better voice. Like, or, you know, we'd play Journey and like he's nailing Steve Perry songs. And if there's any singer I've ever worked with that was worthy of being a, a total prima donna, it would be him. And he was the least out of any singer I've ever played with. I mean, always about the team, always about the band. Like his focus was on on the band and having a good time and, and all of us sharing in success like together. And it was never ever about him. And it so could have easily been in probably 90% of the cases out there, like, you know, people that you deal with who are just that talented who bring egos to the table. And he was never anything uh, less than just a, a great friend and a great bandmate and a supportive bandmate, you know, and yeah. just concerned about everyone getting attention and calling people out like, you know, oh, listen to Chris on drums or, you know, like Eric on bass, you know, Alan on keyboards, whatever it was, just that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Lynn's holding up her, uh, we're doing this on Zoom. So Lynn just, Linda just held up her cell phone and a, a great picture of, of, of Sam with his mouth wide open. We could see his tonsils. <laughs> um, but you know what? The other thing that we're not touching on here is what an amazing multitasker he was because you know, we're talking about, you go down the list of bands, um, you know, Almost Famous, Completely Unchained, Tribute to Van Halen, Beginnings. And, you know, maybe to some people out there, you think that you're cycling out of one band and into another. But at any one time, at least when I knew Sam, I saw him in three different bands at the same time. So it wasn't as if, like, you know, he filtered out of, like, you know, one group and then just went into another. I mean... This is stuff that he was juggling a good point. Like, a good on a point, regular though. on a regular basis. Certainly beginnings. I mean, the growth from when Sam first joined beginnings to what the band became and and was as of his last show. I mean, Adam, you could speak to this. You were there for the full ride. Yeah, I mean, in beginnings, like I said, when he first came in, the the, the bass parts were Peter Cetera, and they were tricky, you know. And then there was Jason Sheff that came in later for Chicago, but. Um, I'm not going to say they were like the most challenging and stuff, but they were definitely more challenging than kind of hard rock that I think he's been, that he, that he was used to. So, but he loved that challenge. And I think over time he appreciated, like, I think somebody asked him like, who's your favorite bass player? And he came out and was like, you know what? Like 10 years ago, I would have said this, but now I'm thinking I might say Peter Cetera from Chicago because I'm recognizing all the kind of stuff that he was able to do. Um, all the, uh, you know, all the complicated lines that he sang on the, underneath that. So I think he grew as a musician and he realized that um, all the songs that he was playing in Chicago were so different and he was able to kind of um, 
Um, Linda showing it. Is that a, a Mason shot in, in the kiss makeup? I see that. That's great. I believe Mason was a Paul Stanley guy. That is awesome. But, but Lou, to your point, I mean, he, he was in Almost Famous and when we were in Beginnings and he was doing stuff like that. I remember one time we did a show in Jersey and he was on stage and we finished our opening Chicago medley in Beginnings. And he said, thank you very much. We are Almost Famous. I, I mean, Beginnings. And he, he, he screwed up. <laughs> what He forgot what band he was playing with that night. Yep. And we all just like laughed behind them and we had a good laugh and the crowd you know, knew he was in multiple bands, but it was like a perfect human moment. Of and sometimes show. he would play two bands in a night. Yeah. Like I, I, not even that infrequently. Well, and by, by the way, let's not forget that he was booking these bands at the same, oh, not just yes. playing in them, but booking them. Yes. I mean, holy shit. Yeah, we, alone. I would be driving along Florida or whatever in New Jersey with him and we'd be driving to a sound check and he would be on the phone as we're driving and he'd be like, oh, I just booked two more gigs before we got to the sound check. So he wasn't ever kind of resting on that, you know. Um, we would be at like a family barbecue and he would step aside. He's like, I just booked three gigs. What yeah, are you talking yeah. about? He was like nonstop, nonstop. But Adam, you actually brought up a good point earlier that, you know, Mason at any one time was involved in several bands. And, and maybe there were times where he had that cross the streams moment where he was on stage with one band, but introduced them as another. You know, he's a human being. He's only one man. It's 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 unavoidable. You know, not every gig works out. Every band kind of has their spinal tap moment. And, and Oh, for sure. And Dave, Adam, I mean, I'm sure there's a handful of them. I mean, is any any great, like, real spinal tap moments come to mind in terms of, like, things that just didn't work out that you had to muscle through? Oh, God. I mean, there's a bunch with beginnings. I mean, we did so many. We were fortunate to do so many fun shows where the, the crowds were huge. And sometimes the crowds weren't that huge. And but Linda, I remember one time we played a bar on Long Island and, and Mason had something wrong with his leg or something. Remember he had like an operation on his knee or his leg or something. And and yes. he was the last to come in. And I remember Linda going, oh, yeah. he came in and we didn't have the stool set up for him. And Linda, Hold on, Steely. Hold on. Hold on. He had knee surgery. It was knee surgery, right? Okay. And he didn't, Not something was just wrong with his leg. He had a torn ACL. Yeah. And he had just had surgery. Well, he had to suck it up. He and was he had in to a knee brace and crutches. Right. Proceed. But I think the only thing you asked was like, all right, just make, he's going to make the gig tonight, guys, but just make sure you have the stool up for him. And we're all ready to go. And we're waiting for him to come in. And he comes in and you're like, come on, guys, where's the stool? The stool was nowhere to be found on stage. Nobody's hooked him up for it. And he just, do and he just laughed at it. And he was just like, oh, my God. So he sat down and I went and I, and I you know, I, I yelled at the manager. I was like, I need a chair and he needs to be this high for him to sit. And then I need another chair and he needs to be this high for his leg. We started goofing off a little bit, me and Mason. Like there were moments in the show where I would just naturally stand next to him and come out front and we would either jump up and down together. We had like the synchronous thing. And there were days where it was like 95 degrees outside and he would look at me and I'd look at him and be like, are we really going to do that jumping jack thing together that we do in sync? All right, we're going to do it. We always do it. And then I think one show I ended by throwing a tambourine up in the air for the end of 2564 and it went way too high, way away from me. And I don't even know if it was going to hit something. Mason stuck out his hand and caught it like right as the symbol downbeat happened. And he just looked at me like, how the heck did that? <laughs> like I threw it way too hard. I was like, oh shit, that's not going to end well. And he, I think he hit the, the last note and caught it with his other hand and looked back at me like, what just happened? <laughs> and, and it would have made a loud crack. I think it would have hit something and made, it would have been bad. And he caught it. And I was like, oh, thank God he caught it. That is some <laughs> finger of God shit right yeah, there. I mean, yeah, but I mean... It was just like a lot of little moments like that that, uh, you know, you just you don't know what to expect. And, and he always made the best of it and rescued things. <laughs> 
Dave, you must have some Spinal Tap stuff with with Almost Famous. Oh, quite a bit. You know, I, <laughs> I, I you know, I, like I've said before, you know, Beginnings was sort of like the serious band, and Almost Famous was like you know, the Van Halen, you know, just anything goes kind of band, you know, and for some reason people liked us enough to to keep us playing big gigs and stuff. But um, there are a number of things. Uh, there were things like that were just. I wouldn't even call them spinal tap moments. They, they were more like just having fun in a band together moments where Sam would, would come up uh, like when I was playing a solo, usually a, a complicated solo that was challenging and I need to be really focused on. And he, I'd see him come up and he'd get these big eyes and a like shitting grin on his face and he'd grab the headstock of my guitar and then start shaking it like this so that I couldn't play. And every time, you know, every time. That's great. And you know, and then there was, of course, the the time we we're playing the uh, it was some some place on Long Island, like a uh, it was like a fish house kind of place or something on the water. I forget the town, but it was like it was like you know one of, like one of those uh, you know uh, mariners towns kind of you know where everyone has their boats docked and stuff. And uh, we're playing Welcome to the Jungle, and we get to the part in the middle where Sam, uh, you know, where Axel would sing, you know, you know where you are, you're in the jungle, baby, you're gonna die, that thing, and. Uh, and Sam just out of nowhere is just like, you know where you are? You're in the fish house, baby. Try the fish sticks. And we all just look at each other like, what did he just say? Like, and from that point forward, it just became a thing because we just couldn't let it go. It was it it became, you know, you know, try the chicken fingers. It was like just it just became mayhem. We were playing uh this kid's bar mitzvah and uh at this uh, these people rented a, a theater out for us to play at a local college down in uh Fort Lauderdale. Um, and flew us down to uh, to Florida to play their kid's bar mitzvah where the kid opened for us. And the kid's name was Charlie Steiner. And I must say his his band of, you know, young kids were really unbelievably talented. And we were pleasantly surprised that they were. Um, and, uh, but we get to, you know, uh, Don't Stop Believing and, you know, where he's like, uh, you know, hold on to that feeling. And Sam comes out and he gets right in the crowd's face. He's like, Charlie Steiner, hold on to that feeling. And we all, again, lost it just... <laughs> The the mayhem that he brought to to the stage with at least with almost famous was just nothing short of hilarious and fun and jovial and again showing you just what a big kid Sam really was at heart. Um, but so as far as like spinal tap moments um, that weren't caused by him intentionally on the rest of us, um, we were playing uh, in in Queens one night um, at that place. Lynn she, Lynn's actually holding up a picture of Woodhaven House. Um, which I would say was kind of like our home base. That was almost like a house gig for us, you know. We'd actually rehearse songs there during our gig just because we really didn't rehearse as a band. Um, but uh, we're supposed to be playing, and our bass player is not showing up, not showing up, not showing up. Um, and now it's like, you know, a few minutes before we're supposed to start, we're on the phone, like, you know, where are you? And he he is like... You, the thing that got sent out to me was for, I thought it was for tomorrow night. It was like a Friday we're playing. And this was the Saturday uh, that he thought he was playing. And we're just like, holy shit, what do we do? And uh, one of my good friends, Paul, was there. And he's friends with this guy, Archie, who uh, wasn't a bass player, but plays guitar. And the kids, like, it, the dude's a prodigy, you know, just not trained. But you just can tell, like, when you meet people. The guy drives there, never played with us before, doesn't really play bass. And we, we didn't have a bass. So he's like, I need a bass. I don't have a bass. And so Sam uh, went home and got his bass rig for this dude to play through. And the dude just 
so I, I just was calling out chords to him and the changes and he was just, he rock, rocked with it. It was amazing. Um, and again, I would say Almost Famous might be the luckiest band because this has happened more than one time. That, that ended up being an unbelievably successful night for us. And I think people love the fact that we were so under the gun. Again, this, we used to play this place like, you know, once every month and a half, every two months. And so like the, the people who come and see us were kind of like family and they all knew the deal. And I think everyone was just blown away by the fact that someone could just step in and we could just work with them and just a ton of eye contact to make it happen. But go back to the past, like I didn't even know what year it was, but our drummer at the time um, was this guy. And we had two gigs back to back, Friday and Saturday night on Long Island. And Sam and I were like, you know, there's no reason for us to drive home. Let's just get a hotel and like whoever wants to stay, let will you know, put us up in a couple of hotel rooms. And so the entire band uh, stays in, in, you know, a couple of hotel rooms together out on the island and Andy, our drummer drove back to Westchester. Um, so anyway, the next night, you know, we just played a gig the night before. So we're thinking everything's fine. We show up to the venue, we're set up and everything's set up and there's a void on the stage where drums go and we're calling Andy cause it's now like an hour before. And we're like, dude, you on your way? Not hearing back, texting, everyone's doing it. No, nothing. Now it's 10 minutes before we're supposed to hit and there's a void where drums go. And so about five minutes before Andy texts uh, Sam and's just like, I'm not gonna make it, I know I'm an asshole. Something to that effect. And we're just like, holy fucking shit. Again, it's our first gig at this new venue. It's a big venue. And so I, I, I think we made up some story like, oh, our drummer was in this horrible car crash. He's like getting, you know, medevac to like the hospital, you know, and <laughs> whatever whatever that the Johns Hopkins hospital in uh, DC or whatever, in Bethesda, you know, whatever. And, um, and, and the manager was super cool. And he said, look, the people here love their music. Um, can you guys do something acoustically? And of course I didn't have an acoustic guitar or anything like that, but I had an acoustic simulator on my pedal board. So I'm like, all right, we can work something out. So we just fudged the first set, the, the 40 minutes of just, uh, you know, we played some rock songs. We just, we just kind of, you know, improvised the whole way. And the crowd was awesome. And they, they knew, we told them what our situation was and they appreciated it. So we take a break and the former drummer from beginning, or from, from beginnings, from Big Shot, who Sam used to play with, happened to be in the crowd, happened to live around the block, comes up. He's like, dude, he's like, what happened? We tell him the whole story. He's like, I'll play with you guys. And he's like, give me 20 minutes. He went home, got his drums, came back, set up, and we did the next two sets as a full band. And it again, we're in the middle of nowhere. Long, we had never even been to this town. And again, I would call that the, the, the luck of almost famous, like, you know, chips are down. You think it's over. You think you're totally screwed. And like, you know, someone comes out of the woodwork. Yeah, okay. I got stuff. Let's, let's do it, you know, so. The one terminology that keeps coming up during this show with regard to Sam is, is laser focus and talk about laser focus. He was in how many bands at one time. And then Linda, he goes back to school. Oh yes. He decided to go back to college because he didn't go when he, when, it, when he was 18, he decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to New York and I'm not going to go to school. And so he decided to change his story, to rewrite his story and decided to go back to school. He went to Queens college he graduated summa cum laude with a degree in uh, business and communications. And so um, he got a job at this company where he was creating um, marketing videos 
um, and designing the videos, doing the sound, shooting it, I guess producing it. He was doing all that for it. And that knowledge carried over into his work with the band because he would make promo materials um, for the band. And he actually was hired just a few times to do promo materials for other bands. Now, Linda, you touched on this earlier that there was a bit of celebrity in your life that you guys had to balance. And most people would probably scoff and say, well, you know, first world problems. But what a lot of people don't realize is that you had to share the attention. Being with a career musician, a touring musician for 27 years, I mean, let's be honest, there are a lot of wives, girlfriends, significant others that wouldn't be so tolerant of of the traveling, the touring, and, and their time their partner spends away from home. That has to be really hard to balance. And and we've mentioned this throughout the show, but he stayed pretty grounded. It had to have taken a lot of sacrifice from you. And I know I've asked you this before, but I mean, all those years, how did that work? It was a lot of sacrifice. You know, um, there were family weddings that he couldn't come to. There were birthday celebrations. There was my birthday, our anniversary um, Valentine's Day, like things like that, that he would miss just family get togethers, get togethers with his own family, our family, um, friends, but it was his passion and he loved it. And because it was his passion, it was my passion. I, I can't really explain why I was okay with it. You know, over the years, many women have told me like, I don't know how you could do that. I could never do that. I could never let my husband go and travel. I just, you know, I don't know how you do that. I don't know either. I just, he never gave me a reason not to trust him. He never did. And so I always trusted him. I wanted him to do well. I wanted him to be happy and to follow his dreams. You know, we had talked about, you know, what would happen? What would happen if he got signed or if he got like some great gig with actual Chicago or anyone else and had to be on the road for a year? We talked about that. And he was like, well, you just come with me. And I would say, like, I can't just come with you. Like, I have a job and I have a life. He's like, all right, well, you'll just come out as much as you can. Like, it was never a question for him or for me that we wouldn't do it. We would always do it. That was our plan. Like, it would always somehow work out. But um, I really can't tell you why it was okay for me. It was, it just was. That's who he was. That was the man that I fell in love with. And I would never squelch that. I would never say, you can't do this. It's too much or I'm not okay with it. That's just not what I'm made of. And it, it was just not us. It was just not us. You balanced that great though, Linda. Even when we did like a big stretch in Florida with beginnings, you would come down for key dates in a row and then realize that you had to go back and stuff. And, and you guys were okay with it. It's, it's a testament to your relationship. Yeah, we did it. We did it. Well, and, and quite frankly, I just need to throw this out there. Having not that I, that, you know, Sam and I never really toured together, but you know, we do our weekends like up in Albany or Boston or wherever. And you know, Sam wasn't the guy who was in a band to get laid. He was a guy who was in a band because he loved music. You know what I mean? And so, you know, the trust factor that wasn't even like a. I, I think you know. I know you love the music from day one and that is the man you fell in love with, you know, or the boy at that time. Right. Um, and you guys were great together because that was the deal. Like you gave him, you weren't squelching his dreams and his, you know, the thing he loved, you know, in life and wanted to be more than anything. And 
he absolutely respected that and wasn't going to fuck up what he had with you either. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, to me, that's the, that's the balance. And it is tough, like, you know, being in a relationship with a musician, even if they're just playing locally. I mean, you, you like you said, you, you miss a lot of events. You miss a lot of family stuff. You miss a lot of, you know, important moments in people's lives, but it's just, it's, that's the way of that world, you know, and it takes a special person to be able to be involved with someone who is living in that world, you know, um, again, whether it be touring nationally or worldwide or, or just playing locally or playing the East coast or whatever. I just can't tell you how much I know he appreciated that of you just because we knew so many people who loved playing music and their other halves were really, once they got married, like just shutting that shit down. And, you know, uh, that's just not who that's not who you married and, and you realize that and I think that that is just awesome that you I, I said it before you've always been so supportive you know through the the billion of bands I've been in with Sam and and again with beginnings and big shot and completely unchained like you've always just been you know the the solid rock right there and not just for him for the bands you know thank you and I know and I know he appreciated me and I know if he could say anything to me, he would say thank you because he he thought that you know if it wasn't for me he wouldn't be able to do it. You know he has said that. Yeah. Not and not not every relationship is built for that. Agreed. Even on a small scale, I mean it's not like like beginnings didn't go on a world tour or anything like that. But you know I was very thankful that that my wife Kristen was really supportive. She knew it was important to me. And Mason and I talked about that. We would talk about like how fortunate we are that we have wives that like support this craziness. And you know. You know, Mason was definitely more invested in it than I was. I couldn't make all of the ones that were were on the big stretches and stuff. I did most of them, but um, and and a lot of it, it was weird. A lot of times, Mason and I were very different people, um, but we were the same. You know, like we had that overlap of love of music, and we respected each other's lives. And he knew that I had a day job and I had kids and all that stuff, and he was so supportive of all that. He wasn't like the guy that was like, "You got to abandon that. And you got to be on the road with us." He wasn't that. He just knew that there was a commitment that I had to the, to the band and, and he had to the music and we, we made it work. And, and I know that I knew that when he was on the road, you know, he was always thinking of you. There was never a question like exactly what Dave said. It wasn't about, it was, he ha- he already had his girl. He already had the girl, you know what I mean? Now he was going for the, for the music and, and, and his focus was on that. I think I was just so lucky. People have through the years always asked me that, like you're so supportive and how do you do it? I'm the lucky one. That's how I feel. I'm the lucky one for having had this amazing special relationship for all these years with a person who is, I think, larger than life and whose presence I think is, is just so strong. You know, I think he shed a positive light on, on everybody who he met. And, and I think for me, he still does. And so I'm the lucky one. And I used to joke with him because I was always, I always felt gratitude for us. I always did. And I used to say to him, we're just hanging out here on the couch. And I would say to him, I'm so lucky. And he would say, yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, that mutual respect in the relationship is, is huge. It's important. I know but I that, had it as a band yeah. member with him. I know he made me a better band member. So He would joke and he would say, yes, you are. And then he would say, no, I'm the lucky one. You know, and you both bring up really good points that specifically to Sam, this wasn't a fad. It was a life. And especially when you track his career to beginnings, I mean, this 
isn't a group of millennials trying to figure it out. These are older, more life-established guys who have, you know, families, homes, day jobs and careers. And it speaks a lot to the people waiting at home, the wives, the girlfriends, kids, you know, you, Lynn. And um, it's just a testament to the relationship you guys had and your support. And I think that just kind of helped make Sam, you know, he was a guy who was always improving his craft. And we talk about how much better could he be, but I think that did help make him better. I would absolutely agree. I mean, you know, if, if again, like I said, I know so many people who, once they got married, kind of got like the, the soul sucked out of them, you know, because their wives didn't uh, understand or, or th- you know, understand the calling of it or whatever. And if, if anything, you actually amplified it for him as opposed to, you know, detracting from it. And it, honestly, what he did, and I, I said this earlier when I was kind of getting ahead of myself and I think of, of the whole, here we were these kids playing music for nothing, like paying to play, like, you know, naive kids from small towns, small town America. Um, and, you know, he's the one who dragged me into like the tribute cover world, you know, and I never made more money playing music in my life before then. And so for him to have gone through that and, you know, be the catalyst for me for that, but also take beginnings to the level he took beginnings to, I mean, that's some serious shit right there. That's, that's thinking outside the box and grinding and figuring out, you know, okay, my dream of being a rock star, like in the traditional sense that everyone thinks it is, isn't happening. So we're going to figure something else out. And by the way, becoming a rock star like that is like hitting a lotto. Number one, number two, even if you do have a hit record when you first come out, maintaining that is like hitting a lot of like five more times. And so to figure out a way to, to make really good money playing music and, and make that be your life where you can support yourself um, and figure out that it wasn't on this, you know, insanely, you know, starstruck MTV type level. And you can do this through other, other means. And there's a demand for this. And what he built beginnings into is just, it's absolutely unbelievable, especially for me to watch, you know, know where he came from and see what he created. And then, or I, you know, augmented, at least in the case of Beginnings, to this superstar band where the actual band is, the, began, the band Chicago knows who Beginnings is and respects their talent and, you know, just how, how authentic they are. I mean, how cool is that? Like, who can say that, you know? I mean, it's, it's unbelievably impressive what he did. And again, a lot of it's because he had a supportive wife with Lynn, you know, so. Agreed across the board. Now, guys, we've spent a great deal of time talking about Sam's musical evolution leading up to his run with Beginnings and and what he helped build that band into. But let's really take a listen to Beginnings, fronted by the dynamic Mason Swearingen. Have a listen.
So good. Now, we could wax poetic about bass and Swearingen all day long, but some accolades come in the form of print media. And I quote a 2016 concert review of beginnings at Atmos Center at Hartford Community College. The columnist goes on to say, and I quote, Exceptional sound captured by no other band in the 60s or to this day. Mason Swearingen leads the band on vocals and bass guitar. I am naming him the McDreamy of musicians. <laughs> I couldn't take my eyes off him. His voice was so smooth. Swearingen's range is very impressive. And unlike many of the bands we see today, this guy is a born performer. He took the lead in most of the songs throughout the show, but also gave the audience a tour of history through the music of Chicago that spans over many decades. So, Lynn, by this account, I, I think that would make you Mrs. McDreamy. Well, Linda yes. wrote that article under a pseudonym. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> I did not. Oh, my God. He got teased so much by the guys. Do you remember that? Yeah, we, 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 we McDreamied him for months after that. Like, oh, McDreamy's here. Very good. Okay. Oh, yeah. And I was definitely Mrs. McDreamy, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, evolution, growth. It seemed like Mason was always 10 steps ahead in what Beginning's thumbprint was going to be. And part of that was as social media marketing became more relevant was stepping up and recognizing the tremendous reach beginnings could have via that platform. And that came in the forms of a Facebook page, which you can see for yourself at beginnings, a tribute to the music of Chicago official. And on that page, you can see photo history of their performances from their unbelievable run. Additionally, you'll find some pretty cool video content, which of course features some of their live performances and some, some have absolutely nothing to do with the musicianship of the band these are some pretty fun and creative pre-produced videos do yourself a favor fire up youtube and search for beginnings tommy boy scene it is so in the pocket funny so good it's so well done and if anything showcases masons and the band's comedic timing adam you got to tell me how did this come about we had a lot of time on the road in Florida in between shows. We did like a, a stretch of like 14 or 15 dates within like maybe 19 days. And 
everybody was pretty savvy with it with an iPhone and with editing and myself I think I edited I, I that one I edited on Premiere on, on my laptop that I brought so we we would shoot this stuff as we were driving and at night we would check into the hotel and then it became like a drinking editing session and we would just like just make these movies like little shorts and stuff we did a spinal tap one we did an oceans 11 spoof but the tommy boy one was that was pretty epic that was a lot of fun and just all the cutaways of them driving along and singing and crying uh to, to the the carpenter song that they hear in the movie and and mason and doug recreated the whole moment between the two of them between chris farley and david spade it was a blast and mason got just as much into those again as he did anything on on stage it, became like a little social media gag and some of the people that couldn't be with us in Florida, like the fans that love this, couldn't wait to see like the next thing that we posted for a video on that. And I had a friend of mine do some graphics for the for the logo and we'd kind of tack that onto the beginning and the end. It was fun. It was a, it, it filled our day and, and it just bond, it made, it made us bond even, even more. Yeah. That, that one's one of my favorites. Uh, let's play a little snippet of a uh, beginnings Tommy boy scene. Yeah, here we go. Change it if you want. I don't care. It's up to you. It's good with me if it's good with you. Suit yourself. Don't you remember you told me you love me, baby? Said you'd be coming back to play again, baby. <laughs> oh, man. It's so good. It's so funny. Uh, let me tell you, uh, listening to it doesn't do it any justice. As I said before, fire up YouTube and look for Beginnings Tommy Boy Scene. Now, let me just tell you about this guy's comedic timing. I mean, you had the video that they did for Tommy Boy. And then there was another one where they did a send-up of the famous scene from Anchorman 2 <laughs> where the cast spontaneously burst into a rendition of Afternoon Delight. Uh, so tell us, Adam, what's it like being on the road with the beginning? Oh, it's fantastic. Actually, it's really quite simple. It's kind of like Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight, gonna grab some afternoon delight. My motto's always been when it's right, it's right. Why wait until the middle of a cold night? When everything's a little clearer in the light of day. And we know the night is always gonna be there anyway. say mason totally nailed the <laughs> you could also find that one on youtube by searching for beginnings with ron burgundy but adam one of the best vignettes that beginnings did by far was you guys did a shot for shot remake of the bellagio fountain scene from the end of oceans 11 take us behind that yeah what was weird about that one was is, is it wasn't a funny one it was just like a sincere like inspiring we the vegas trip that we did was like a yearly thing it was south point casino it was in henderson las vegas just off the strip just outside of the strip but we would take a, a trip into the strip after one of the shows and we would just go to the bellagio and we're like we shot something like, hey let's shoot the end of a 
Ocean's Eleven, where we're all just staring at it like we've achieved something. You know, they've done, they pulled off the great heist in the movie, but we pulled off a great show, whatever. But it, there wasn't anything funny about it other than we were just trying to be sincere and like just recreate it and a moment that we were all just proud to be there with each other. And I remember we did it. And I think if you watch the original movie, they're all kind of like leaning on a, on a, either like a balcony or something. And there, there wasn't any of that. So we actually just put our arms like this and framed it so that maybe the balcony was just like out of frame or whatever, whoever we got to shoot. It. I think it was Dan's wife, but um, we got it. And then we got the reverse shot of the, of the fountain going off. And then we figured we'd do a couple of takes of it. But the one take that we got was the last fountain of the night. And we, we totally lucked out. It was like one take. And luckily we had it set. We were going to do another take of it. And then it just didn't go off again. Like they, they powered down for the night. And we were like, holy crap, did we get it? And we, it was one take that we got the fountain and all those reaction shots in. But it's funny, as, as you just queued that up and just talked about it, it's one of the ones that we just did like legitimately. Like we, we were just trying to be like sincere about it. We weren't trying to goof on the movie or... Yeah, obviously it's a it's a shot for shot kind of a parody of it, but it wasn't. It was like a, a a sentimental moment. It wasn't. We weren't going for a laugh there. We were going for just something. You know, here's eight guys that came to Vegas and we played a show, and we're just proud of it. We're not the only ones that did that. It's not the greatest achievement in the world, but it was something that we did, and we we were proud of it. It was fun. It's actually a beautiful piece, especially when you see those reaction shots. Everybody is so doe eyed and beautiful, <laughs> and it is really, really touching. And again, I know I teed up the segment regarding Mason's comedic timing, but this one wasn't meant to be funny. It's just, it's it's entertaining. All these videos were entertaining. And Beginnings was represented by having all the band members in these videos, but they weren't specifically performance pieces or gigs. But Adam, these social media vignettes and the departure of them kind of gave the band a, a personality. You know what I mean? No, I was going to say, there's just a lot. Even we did short ones like that too. I, I was fooling around with like a, a little piece called Green Room Goodies at one point where just a quick 10 second, like somebody said something in the green room and then I put the beginnings logo on it. Quick, post that up, you know, just to show that we're like giving some semblance of stuff behind stage. One of my favorite ones, it was actually Vegas. It was um, the dressing room of the Dennis Bono show. So when we do the Vegas show, it would be Friday night, Saturday night and Sunday night. Thursday afternoon, we had to tape a a show uh, uh, of, of, of us performing two songs on the Dennis Bono show. And the Dennis Bono show was basically like broadcast throughout Vegas and it helped boost ticket sales for the next three nights. It was like, oh, and we have a comedian and we have an Elvis impersonator and we had the Chicago tribute band from New York beginnings. And we would play Saturday in the park and then they'd walk up to Mason and say, so how did you start? And it was a very Vegas, very like lounge act kind of a thing. And we ate it up. It was just fun to be like the guest star on it. Behind the scenes, we did a video where Mason was was talking to the camera. And in the background, you would just see the rest of the band members just falling apart, trying to find the guitar players, trying to find bass strings. I would be like picking up somebody, throwing a pillow at somebody else. And Mason would just be straight dead onto the camera, just doing something deadpan while the rest of us were doing crazy stuff behind him. And I don't know how he kept a straight face on it. And that was another thing we did, I think, in one take, too. And again, we don't know what the hell it was, but it was 30 seconds. All right, throw that up. Throw that up. That's another video we have. Um, Didn't you guys do like the Spinal Tap Cleveland thing? We we did. We did. And and it's funny. that this, I, I said, let's just do full like kind of a Spinal Tap spoof. We did that in, in Cleveland. And I had to get and I had to get the shot from behind Mason saying, hello, Cleveland, because that was going to be the end of the video. And 
so we would finish the we would finish the the first opening medley, and I'd have to put my sax down, grab my phone, and put it on movie, and just try to get like the shot. And I got it just in time before he was like, "Hello, Cleveland," and then I would let it run. And their applause, I would cut back and forth to earlier in the in the piece. But we we staged all these stupid things where, and I was kind of proud of the one thing. I think Mason came up with it with me when we were editing it. We couldn't. The whole joke was we couldn't find the stage, like this final tap joke, but they can't find the stage. So at one point we wandered into the elevator, and <laughs> like some for some reason, oh, there's an elevator. Maybe that'll take us to the stage. And there's a shot where I just slowly pan across everybody in the elevator. And in post, I dropped in a Muzak version of If You Leave Me Now by Chicago. It was just played on my piano. <laughs> and, and it was this subtle little humor of you just hear, and Mason heard it, and he, I think he did the biggest spit take. And when he first heard it, it played back. Like, I played it for him on my computer in the hotel room, and he was like, is that, it? Is that a music ver- Muzak version? Oh, my God, this is hysterical. Put that in there. And we just had fun with doing stupid stuff like that. Um, but uh, and and his Mason's face, I could, it was so funny when we panned by it. He was just like looking up in the air, like just frustrated, you know, like why why can't we find the stage? We're late, we're late. But total Spinal Tap kind of stuff. But Linda, you wouldn't know what we're talking about because you've never seen Spinal Tap. Is that that's, a movie? Like, what is that? Is it a show? Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm sorry, we're gonna have to throw this out there, but um, it, 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 came, mi- it came out like uh, before it's or after Star Wars. Yeah, it's seven yeah. years after. Oh wait, have you have, have you seen, have you seen, seen Star Wars? I've seen Star Linda? Wars. That, that's okay, a movie okay. too. Have you? Yes. You've seen Star Wars. <laughs> like the entire thing. You've seen just episode four. You haven't seen the whole thing. Oh no. Oh no. Oh man. Well, that's another, that's another podcast po- for another that's time. Another it is, yeah. Um, that's definitely another podcast. Yeah, um, I just have to throw this out there that uh, Mrs. McDreamy here has never seen this as Spinal Tap and she is long overdue. But I feel like I kind of She's feel like it. it's one of those things that's really hyped up for you that by the time you get to it, you're gonna be like, well, that's not funny. I know. I'm there already. Yeah. <laughs> you know, something she probably knows the movie from all of I us. I know quoting whenever it, like, there's an English accent years. and it's something that doesn't make sense, it's spinal tap, right? All I know is that you can't you can't dust for vomit. Huh. No. <laughs> Actually it wasn't his vomit, it was someone else's vomit. <laughs> I think all of this speaks to the many hats Mason wore. I mean, the capacities he served in and and brought to these bands, more specifically, of course, beginnings. Everything from scheduling and booking the gigs to to making beginnings a more realized show and experience. And part of that, as we just discussed, was helping to fuel their social media presence, which, again, you can see for yourself on the Facebook page, Beginnings, a tribute to the music of Chicago official. Again, his legacy is not only the passion, but it's it's about drive and, and evolution, which that takes time. And Mason had been doing this for years. I mean, the, the hustle of a touring musician who ultimately made this his full-time job, I mean, eventually there has to be the wear and tear of the job, the, the road, the physicality of it. Linda, did you and Mason ever discuss the future of this or, or possibly him going out on top as a performer? You know, stepping out of the spotlight and and maybe next steps to play another role in the live music business. Like, was there a plan? We talked about it. We talked about it because he got so um, wrapped up into booking the band and really good at it and made connections with booking agents and um, venues. He talked about at some point doing that. So that was something that he thought might be in the future. You know, Mason also used his talents as a force for good and as a means to give back. 
And one of the ways he did that was to get both Almost Famous and Beginnings involved with Stanford Education for Autism. And Stanford Education for Autism is a not-for-profit organization that serves to help provide educational opportunities and supportive services to the autism spectrum disorder population and their families within the greater Stanford, Connecticut community. And basically, either Almost Famous or Beginnings would play an annual benefit concert whose proceeds would go towards Stanford Education for Autism. Now, I personally worked a few of these shows, and I had the pleasure of being privy to a lot of the behind-the-scenes production of those performances, and that's when I got a real sense of Sam's expanded role behind the scenes. You know, on the outside looking in, Sam was this incredible frontman, bass player, performer on stage at these fantastic shows. But behind the scenes, he was a task master, and I mean that in the best way possible. Sam made things happen, and he treated those annual benefit concerts with the same importance as if they were playing Madison Square Garden. Because for Sam, it was about the kids who, every time he played, you could find Sam at the front of the stage not only singing directly to, but connecting with these kids who previously weren't able to take loud music and and loud sounds and, and didn't connect with music. But there they were. Many of them for the first time singing, dancing, rocking out because of Almost Famous, because of Beginnings, because of Sam and how he reached them. I completely agree. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, Robin Portanova, who, who runs that organization, and he, he was the one who was booking Beginnings in Almost Famous all these years, uh, has always said that no one connected to the kids like the way that Sam and, and these bands did. and. Again, she she just uh, like said like swears by it. like you've changed these kids' lives. Like these these kids would were totally uh, they would normally be completely freaked out by the loud music and all the lights going and the whole you know stage uh, you know performance going on. You know, like I guess you know like the intensity of a of a Kiss show without the fire. But Sam was always right up in front, like high-fiving the kids and like making them a part of the show. And to this day, like those kids are such huge fans of both of these bands. And, and really, the, the reason being is, is because of, of Sam and being welcoming them into this, this big stage world and making them feel like a part of this and special and, you know, uh, letting them know that they're special. And, and even after the shows, like, you know, like the meet and greet stuff afterwards, it just being so uh, concerned with making sure that he's saying hello and, and, and interacting personally with everyone, not just some of them, like, you know, not just a few people here, a few people there and like, we're done, like truly caring. Um, and, and, and Lynn, I mean, you can speak to this on, on even, uh, you know, beyond the, uh, the Stanford uh, Education for Autism side of this. I mean, just what he's done uh, from a, a just being a good person and, and, and a giving back to society kind of person, you know, as far as w- what he did with, uh, you know, going to play for, for people, you know. Yeah, he would come and play um, at my school, uh, a preschool for children with special needs at the holidays. And it was the same thing. Kids who were normally overwhelmed by crowds or too much sensory um, stimulation happening would just come up. And, and he would be just playing guitar and singing holiday songs or bills on the bus and whatever. And, you know, little girl with autism would come up who would, everybody was scared, like, oh my God, she's going to hold her ears and run out. And she would go up and touch the guitar, you know, and he would bend down and play to her. 
or um, a little boy in a wheelchair, you know, who couldn't get up and come and touch the guitar, he would walk over to him, you know, and he would smile. And um, he touched people like that. You know, there was a few times it, years ago that he went and played for um, adults, seniors in a nursing home. Like he did that and he enjoyed it. He enjoyed it just as much because his connection with people is the thing that was the most important to him. Robin Portanova, who ran the Stanford Education for Autism, um, would send Sam uh, texts or messages from the kids. And she sent him a message once um, from this little boy named Jack who wrote, uh, made this big sign that said, I, I love you, Mason. And so he said to me, all right, listen, I'm going to write this thing. He wrote, I love you too, Jack. And he held it up and he made me take a picture of it so he could text it to Robin to show Jack. And um, he's, he's gone and seen Jack, you know, many years after that. It's like he made these people part of his life and people felt like he was their friend. You know, I still have a bunch of notes and cards and things from people, signed pictures. They gave, they gave him as gifts because he gave them so much. He didn't always know how what he did was so important. You know, he would tell me that what I did was important. You know, you work with children with special needs. That's so important. What I do is so insignificant. And I told him, no, it's not insignificant. People would come up to him, whether it was this show, and say, oh, my God, my, my, my son, like, lit up. I've never seen him like this. It, it's so special. And he looks forward to you every year. From that to the couple that said, you know, we love Chicago and we love seeing you and you guys are so nice. Can you please, um, you know, I, I want to propose to my girlfriend at your show and he would let them and he would, he would tell me about it because he was so excited or to the guy who said, you know, my wife and I used to come to your shows all the time and we danced to these songs at our wedding and now she passed away and I still come because it makes me happy. All of that stuff was so important. So it's not, that this was insignificant. It was extremely significant because he touched people. And sometimes people need to get out of the moment and find some happiness and find some um, entertainment and relief in music, you know, and, and to get out of whatever pain that they're in to feel good. And that's what he gave people. He gave that to everybody. True. That's so true, Linda. I mean, just every show was that, that celebration. It, everything else outside the 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 auditorium wherever we were playing didn't matter that was the place to be and that's what he shared and i could i remember he used to tell me about that he used to tell me about going to sing for the for the kids and everything and he you know he's, he's he doesn't roll his eyes at stuff like that he really invests himself in it and uh saw the power of music and it's corny but it's so true that's what he's that's what he that's what he recognized he recognized what a song can do and when you perform it and you love it and you and he's invested in it and he's singing it and he loves what he's doing, people recognize that and they take part in it and they see how into it he is and then they feel like they're relating to him. And it's great. It's just that, that's, that was what was inspiring about how he shared it, his talent. I, I think the key word here is, is genuine. You know, it, it's just whether you're in the crowd or whether you're a bandmate of his, you know, you look over at him and it is, yep. it, it is genuine. Like, I mean, he's loving it. Like Adam, you said before, whether you're playing to two people or 2000 people, he's, he's, he's just loving what he's doing, you know, and, yeah. and putting it out there, uh, from the heart always. And it's, and it's funny, I'm, I'm married to a singer, so I never 
my wife always used to tell me, oh yeah, that person, you know, she would watch like somebody perform. It's like, they sounded great, but they didn't really sound connected to the song. And I always thought it was just a bunch of double talk when she used to say that. I'm like, what are you talking about? She, the person hit the notes. They, they sang the words. But she would always say, Mason's connected to the song. Mason sounds like he's singing the song, uh, relating to the lyrics, telling a story, doing all that. And I never really paid attention to that until my wife said that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what Mason's doing. You're right. So, um, you know, that, that that goes a long way. It's like it's it's you can just go up and just kind of wing wing stuff and. But it could be, you know, one time I, I remember in, in Atlantic City, I think we just, we, we wanted to do another thing. And he looked at me, he said, do you want to do jump? And it was beginnings. But, but, but I said, yeah, do jump. And I had horns written out for the jump. And we just did jump by Van Halen. And he just, he just cracked up. It's like, what the heck? And we did it. And it, it was wasn't so you know, awesome. It was so it, awesome. It was a lot of fun. And he didn't think I would be like approve of that. I'm like, what are you kidding me? That'd be hysterical. Let's do it. And we did it. And it was still, it still was authentic, as silly as it was to have a horn section play along with jump, which is a little sacrilegious. But it was just I think it's, something it's that cool was, as hell, man. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. It was fun. It was just like one of those things, and the horns were just going because a lot of people knew him from Completely Unchained and Almost Famous, and and to kind of let that like you know hard rock kind of you know party vibe into it um, was a kind of a cool way you know to kind of just show the bridge. And he laughed his way through. He sang it great, and and it was. But it just showed that you know he could call an audible like that, and we could do it and pull it off, and and. Uh, and it was still genuine to your point, Dave. I, I, I totally agree. That's He never did anything phoned in. He never just like, you know, I've played in wedding bands in the past and I, and I love playing weddings. I used to love doing all that. But but sometimes as a horn player, you get burnt and you're like, oh God, I got to play this song again. I got to do this again. You never, ever, ever felt that from Mason. Like any show, every hit, everything that he did, it was like the first time he was playing it or it was like- yeah. It wasn't like, all right, we got to get through this damn tune again, and then just to get to the next one. You never felt that from him. He 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 loved every song in the set. People loved it. They loved it. Yep. Right. There was excitement always. Whether you were in the audience, on stage next to him, or or you knew him, to be around Sam, you know, you were in his light. Sam was an amazing performer. It is full circle, and Sam died doing what he loved best and that was performing as i mentioned at the top of the program we lost sam on august 23rd 2019 and what followed months after that 2019 was just a plethora of tributes and tribute shows one rather large one at a um a, a venue in long island called mulcahy's and there was another one in manhattan the cutting room and and i was at that one and the production of it the marketing everyone pulled resources of all their talents together and all the bands he's ever played in. It was just like people coming from many different walks of Sam's life on the stage at the same time. It was almost like, you know, this is your life, Mason Swearingen. And his father, Gene, singing with an all-star band. What an incredible evening. That was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic night. And I mean, the fact that people are flying in from Nashville and just all over, the, it, everyone came. It, it, I was seeing people I haven't seen in over a decade that I that I know through Sam, you know, or knew through Sam at the time. And it was, it, it was a, a big, you know, reunion. It, it, as sad as it all was, it was still like insanely beautiful at the same time because you just felt the love of everybody. You know, the fact people are making the efforts to, to fucking get off their ass, hop on a plane, come up, prepare music with other people just to, to show how much they love this incredible human being, you know? 
it was like people came out of the woodwork, you know, and yeah. I and I wanted because I was looking around like, oh, here's the this guy. I was like, look who's here, look who's here, you know, trying to like tell them like, oh my god, look who's here, look who showed up. Remember that guy? That guy didn't talk to you for like 15 years. He's here. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that guy? He he took you. He he's here. It was amazing. It was amazing, and I I personally was overwhelmed with all the the love that came out of that and all the things that people said and I cannot imagine um, that he could possibly have have seen that this this would happen that people would just like come out and say all these things it was overwhelming I mean if you look at the beginnings page on Facebook like the things that people say over and over and the volume of it it's incredible to me it, it's incredible to me to have that kind of tribute, you know, to have that kind of love and adoration. And, and many, many were people, were fans who had met him once or twice and, and ca they came out. It, it was just overwhelming to me. Yeah. I mean, it's when somebody is so well loved and then they're gone, it's a horrible feeling. But I got to tell you, from Mason's funeral service to celebrations after. And the key word here is celebration. Many of them, tributes. I mean, I've never been to anything like that where I, I walked out of like a memorial service and I said, God, that rocked. That was a lot of fun. It was adverse and that it made you feel good about Sam and, and that it was a true celebration of Sam's life. Like, so many of the tributes after have been. This episode is just another one. And actually, Linda, you got on stage with Dave Koch at the tribute show at the Cutting Room in New York City, and you performed a duet of Wholehearted by Extreme. So what's the history behind that song? So <laughs> I heard a song on the radio, I think, and I was like, oh, what if I perform a song with Dave? What if I do something that they used to do back in the old days? So I heard Extreme. And I was immediately transported back in time to the time that I, I believe we were coming out of a rehearsal where I tagged along and um, we were in front of Penn Station or Madison Square Garden or something. Madison Square Garden, yeah. And we were, we were walking by and you guys were holding your guitars. And, and of course, some people came by and were like, hey, you guys musicians? Yeah, we're like, yeah, you guys are like, yeah. And like, Can you play something? So you took your guitars out and just sang a cappella extreme was it wholehearted it was wholehearted it was and, wholehearted and that that song was brand new at the time i think or not oh brand God. new but like only a couple years old it was newish it was newish and so that was a song that i thought like what if we what if we do this so we did it we just talked on the phone and you know we rehearsed for five minutes in the basement before we went on you know i i don't pretend to be a singer but it was it was it was my musical tribute my you know you don't need to pretend you're a good singer you're like a badass <laughs> you've been singing with us for years <laughs> yeah i don't know if anyone else thinks i'm good i think i'm pretty okay now nah, you rock well then uh let the people hear for themselves because i happen to have a clip of that very performance from the mason swearingen tribute at the cutting room here's linda swearingen with dave coke wholehearted <laughs> I'm not blind, why can't I see? The circle can't fit 
one more thing. At the top of the show, we shared how Sam's father, Gene, was a tremendous musical influence to him. So I have to call out one more performance from Sam's tribute at the cutting room. Because that influence was very apparent as Sam's father, Gene Swearingen, took to the stage and led the charge with his rendition of the Doobie Brothers classic, Listen to the Music, backed by an all-star band of Sam's brothers, his niece, Dave Koch, and of course, Linda Swearingen. Let's take a listen to a truly special performance. true testament to just an amazing performer. As I mentioned before, Sam gave his last performance on August 23rd, 2019, and Sam died doing what he loved most. He actually only got through a song and a half, and the last song that he was singing was Make Me Smile, and that's what he did for people, is he made them smile. He did, and I know that he continues to make us smile. Now, the outpouring on social media more than a year and a half later still continues. All of this, everything we've been talking about for the past, I don't know, two hours, it all speaks to the legacy of Mason Swearingen. You know, I mentioned earlier that Beginnings had such a tremendous reach that they even caught the attention of Chicago. And as a result, Chicago, upon hearing of Sam's passing, the band Chicago, took to social media with a personalized video message to offer their condolences as tribute to Mason. I mean, I don't think in his wildest dreams would Sam ever think that his life would have such an impact that it would garner this type of tribute and attention. Yeah, it was actually done, the social media thing was done, I think, after the fact, but uh, it was Mike Rubenstein, the trumpet player that would play with us a lot from beginnings, called me and said, hey, for the benefit that we're doing and the, and the tribute show that we're doing for, for Mason, I got something. I, I got in touch with Lee Lockning, the, uh, the trumpet player who did something at my school, and they're going to record something for him. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, don't tell Linda, though. Let's make a surprise. And I couldn't even tell Linda. I was dying to tell you. But he called me, and I said, I, 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 all right, I'll believe it when I, it's a great gesture. It's a great thought. I'll believe it when I see it. And I had a, a we transfer file waiting for me like the next day. And I opened it, and it was the band Chicago talking about Mason and, and offering their condolences. And I said, okay, I got to cue this up somehow. And 
edited a short piece out of it and we played it at Mulcahy's and, and the place went just nuts. And all I could think of was that he would have just loved that. He would have been like, holy cow, how cool is it? That's the thing. Like even after that show, I would, after every show, I would talk to Sam and, and just, you know, reminisce about certain things, about certain reactions that the crowd would have. And that's, I wanted to have like a recap with him after that. I wanted to have like one last, I wanted to have one last, what did you think of that show, man? Because it was for him. Um, and, you know, it, it, Linda was so supportive about everything about that. Everybody that ever played with Beginnings came up on stage. And we had guys coming off the road who toured with Blood, Sweat and Tears and other bands and stuff. And they still flew in to, to kind of play and to do something. And it was a blast. And, and that, that Chicago moment that Mike Rubenstein uh, offered up with the video was, was great. It was something Mason would have just been like, look at that. Holy crap. He, I could just see him smiling. and. Oh my God. Of course. He'd be like, Oh my God, that's awesome. He would have just been like, that's amazing. I can't believe that happened. I could just see him, you know, I could just see him over my shoulder saying that, you know, but. um, For sure. For sure. And I remember my reaction is like, I put my hands over my mouth and I was like, what? And then a split second later, I was like, Oh hell yeah! Of course, Chicago's saying something for him. <laughs> amazing, amazing! It was very cool. It was, it was amazing. Well, all right. Let's hear Chicago's tribute to Mason Swearingen. Chicago. And we send our condolences to everyone there and for Mason and his passing. We're sorry to hear about it. And we know that Mason will be up there rocking with the angels. Incredible. And again, it it speaks to the career, the life, the essence of Mason Swearingen. It's, you know, the legends growing as the stories told. And that's why I said at the top of the program that I flipped format for this episode because this episode serves as my tribute. And I said I would I would pay it off with what the relevance of that is. The relevance of this is the seeds to this show, What a Time to Be Alive, the seeds to What a Time to Be Alive were planted in a beer garden <laughs> in an impromptu Q&A with, with Sam and Linda a few years ago. And that's what I had this idea of doing a podcast, but would also use things and, and the culture I'm passionate about to bring a podcast to life. And I, I know it may not seem like a big deal when anyone and their mother out there can have a podcast, and they most certainly do. But it's a tremendous deal to me. I've surpassed a year on this podcast now, but it's a labor of love, and it's it's my passion, and it's mine. And what I'm getting at is that this is a passion that made it possible, and it's all largely inspired by the life that Mason Swearingen led. Sam went for it all with focus, determination, and passion. We're sad because we're here and he's not. But when you think of Sam, if you knew him, if you saw him perform, he was dynamic on stage and he was dynamic in life because because he was kind. He was genuine. He was real. He was a gentleman. And you just felt good when you were around him. Lynn, if Sam could give anyone advice what would it be? It would be if you're going to do something that you love and you want to be successful, make sure you're prepared. Yep. And keep going and keep trying and don't give up. 
that's it. Work hard. Don't be scared of hard work. Amen. And Linda Swearingen, Dave Koch, Adam Seeley, I want to thank you all for being a part of this. And specifically, Linda, you and I work closely to bring this together. I hope it's a fitting tribute. And if we could thank anyone right now, it would be Sam. So thank you, Sam. Here, here. Thanks, Mason. Here, here. Thank you. Everybody, thanks for listening. I'm Lou Acosta. This is What a Time to Be Alive. Mason Swearingen, you were an inspiration to us all. Play us out one last time. Do what love was meant to be. And I want you here with me From the night until the end of time You should know Everywhere I go Always on my mind In my heart In my soul Hey everybody, just remember that What a Time to Be Alive can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, hell, wherever most podcasts can be found. So hit that download button and please subscribe so you can hear all the other episodes in the archives. And get yourself strapped in because Season 2 is coming. And be sure to follow What a Time to Be Alive on the socials. Lou Acosta saying thanks again for downloading this episode of What a Time to Be Alive.